Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We've been going through uh, Genesis chapter 1 and looking at the different days of creation. And just by way of reminder, um, God first, in the very beginning, there was nothing or no one. And it was God himself who was there uh, in that nothingness. And then God speaks, his word goes out, and matter is formed. And, and there's no more vacuum, uh, but there is, there's matter, and in some rudimentary stage, he creates the earth. And we saw that this earth, the way it was described was that it was formless and it was void that it was uninhabitable and therefore it did not have anything uh, habitating on it. And then we saw towards the end of verse 2 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the earth. The Spirit of God was moving things around, manipulating things around, was really preparing the earth to uh, receive the very Word of God. And then from verse 3 onwards, we see this refrain of, and God said, and God said, and God said. And we saw on day one, God created the light and the darkness, and he separated them. And then in day two, we saw how God created the the expanse, where he divided this this ball of water, and there was this expanse, the rakia that was stretched out, with waters below and waters above. And we saw that, you know, the implication of it, at least from what I can see from the text, is that uh, the waters above refers to some waters at the very edge of the heavens, of the outer space. And then we saw on day, f- on day three, how God said, let the waters then be gathered together and the the great oceans were formed, or the seas were formed. And then out of the raw materials that were in this water, you know, there was carbon and hydrogen and whatever else, they they all came together and started forming rocks, and and mountains came up, and then valleys dipped down, and, and beaches came about. And then we saw that then God said, let there be vegetation. And there were trees, full grown trees, and 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 plants with with fruits and flowers, with colors, uh, you name it. It was a beautiful earth that God had created. And now from, and so that's referring to God forming the earth, where he's now um, made it uh, in a way that is more habitable for life. And now God is going to start filling it from verse four, from day four onwards. So corresponding to day one, when there was light and darkness, he's going to fill that space with, with the sun, moon, and stars, which we'll look at. In uh, day five, when he created the heavens, or the, the atmosphere, and, uh, and the waters below, we see that correspondingly on day five, he's going to fill it with the birds and the fish. And then when on day three, God created the land, we see correspondingly on day six, God is going to create animals, land animals, and man. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at day four, uh, where God is going to begin the process of now filling the earth. By way of outline, uh, nothing fancy, just, uh, just a, a very plain uh, outline, God's declaration in verses 14 and 15, and God's creation in verses 16 through 19. So let's look at God's declaration, verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14 first. It says, And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And God said, Again, God's word goes out. And God says, let there be lights in the expanse, in, in, in the outer space, in, in the rakia. And it was so. Now there are lots of issues people take with this verse as they read this verse. There's a lot of debate that, uh, where people say, oh, how could there be light on, on day four, or rather on day one, if the sun and the moon and the stars were only created on day four. You know, some people who support uh, evolution say that in the process of evolution, the sun had to come first before the earth. So then it can't be that the sun was created on the fourth day. Then there are others who point out that, oh, the sun could not have been created on the fourth day because the plants and the trees were created on the third day. Uh, and the plants and trees, they, they need sunlight, so uh, the sun couldn't have been made on the fourth day. Now, generally speaking, those who, those who do not believe that the sun was created on the fourth day um, and say that the sun was, they say that the sun was actually created on day one, what they say is apparently there was a, this thick cloud that was covering the earth, uh, so even though God created the sun on day one, when all that cloud dissipated, then on day four, then all that light appeared. So according to them, they say, rather than God creating the sun and the moon uh, on day four, God simply made the light of the sun and the moon appear on uh, day four when everything else was cleared up. What do we do about this? Well, it's simple. We go back to the Word of God. And what does the Word of God actually say? We go back to the plain reading of the text of Scripture rather than reading into it and making God's way, God's Word say something that it is not. Scripture does not say that on day four, God said, let the light appear from the great lights. No, it's the same pattern as all the other days. God said, let there be lights, and there were lights. Now, the term lights, it's not the same as the word uh, light. Uh, In light, in Hebrew, it's or, and and light is ma'or. The the word for light, ma'or, is really a term that's used of something that gives off light, like light-bearing bodies. And in fact, outside of Genesis 1, in the first five books of the Bible, that's the Pentateuch, This word, ma'or, or the lights, 
is often used to describe the lamps that are used in the tabernacle. So when God says, let there be lights, he's really saying, let there be light holders in the sky, celestial bodies that give off light. Now you might say, but why did God create the light on day one and then make the sun and the moon and the stars only on day four? Well, scripture doesn't specifically say why, but one of the things that we can be certain about is that God, by creating the light on day one, God is saying that he is the ultimate source of light and life. It is not the sun or the moon or the stars. See, according to the ancient world and even evolutionists today, the sun is the ultimate source of light and life. But Genesis 1 tells us that God alone is ultimate. He alone is the source of light and life. So on day four, God creates these light bearers or or heavenly lamps, if you want to put it that way. And he gives them three functions. First, verse 14 says, to separate the day from the night. And you remember, to separate, we looked at that word. Uh, It has the idea of making distinct with with a set of boundaries. That uh, this thing becomes distinct and uh, it stays within its boundaries. That's what it means to become separate. But now you might be thinking, but didn't God separate the, the day from the night on day one? Yes, that's right. God created the light on day one, and what we know on that day one is God was the source of that light. We don't know anything else about uh, that light. And that light would have been enough for the trees and the plants and all that that grew on day three. But on day four, when God creates these light bearers, he gives them certain functions. And the first one is to separate the day from the night. So even though on day one, God created the light and separated the light from the darkness, giving them distinct boundaries, from day four onwards, God specifically gives that task of separating the light from, uh, separating the day and the night to the sun and the moon. See, from day one, God has already named the light, you know, day, and the darkness he had named night, and he had defined what a day is on that first day. And there was this cyclical pattern of day and night. Nothing has changed in that respect. But what happens on day four is this, that these light-bearing bodies, these heavenly lamps, if you want to call it, that the separation of the day and the night is specifically now tied to them. It is specifically now tied to the sun, moon, and the stars. So when you see the sun coming up, you know, oh, the day is beginning. When you see the sun going down and the moon appearing, you know, oh, it's becoming night. So as one commentator put it, whereas the introduction of light made a distinction between light and darkness, Putting lamps in the sky will make a distinction between day and night in the sense 
that they will make it possible to determine when a day ends and a night begins, and when the night ends and the day begins. So now because the night and day are specifically tied to these heavenly lamps, it's more easier to identify the day and the night, and it becomes even more distinct. So that's the first function that God assigned to the sun and the moon. The separation of the day and that the separation of the day and night would be tied to the appearing and disappearing of these heavenly bodies. Now the second function that God gives to the sun and the moon are to serve as signs. Look at verse 14 again. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now the word sign, it basically means something that points to something. It's like a pointer or a marker, like a, like a billboard, like an advert. Uh, like a billboard on the side of the road. You know, it'll point to something. It'll have some description and it'll point to something. So God created the sun, the moon, and the stars to be markers of the passing of time, to function as natural clocks, to function as timekeepers and, and calendars. God created the sun, the moon, and the stars to be markers for seasons and for days and years. So, first of all, it marks out what a day is. And I would say this is another argument to support that the universe was created in six days. See, because God is saying with the, with the movement of the sun and the moon, you have daytime and you have nighttime. And that marks out what a day is. And so he's saying, this is not talking about ages. It's not talking about millions of years. It's talking about a literal 24-hour day. The function of these celestial bodies is to mark out literal 24-hour days, evening and morning. So it marks out days, but it also marks out seasons. Now the word for seasons, it can literally be translated as fixed times or appointed times. So this could be referring to either months or seasons, because the word in itself just means fixed times or appointed times. Now how do you think months are measured? So we know the day now is measured by the movement of the sun and the moon, how are months measured? Through the phases of the moon, right? That's how you measure a month. And, and if it means seasons, um, here's the other thing that I want you to know. The, the, the earth is actually tilted in a certain axis. And different parts of the earth receive the most direct rays of the sun at different times. So when the North Pole is tilted towards the sun, directly towards the sun, there's summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's winter in the Southern Hemisphere, where it's away from the sun. And then the opposite happens when the North Pole is then tilted away from the sun, and the South Pole is then 
tilted toward the sun. And so in this way, man is now able to figure out, okay, when is sowing time? When is harvest time? When is it time to breed certain animals? In fact, even the very festivals and the feasts of the Israelites were, were tied around the seasons of the year. So the sun and the moon, they mark out days and months or seasons, and then it says it marks out even years. You know, every now and then I stargaze, and one prominent constellation in the sky is the Orion's constellation. And every year, uh, you know, from the month, particularly between January to March, that's when Orion is the most visible. You just look out uh, above the Australian sky, and it's right there, the Orion's belt. You can see that constellation during those months. And with the changing position of constellations, as, as different times go past in the year, together with the cycle, the phasic movements of the moon and the sun, together with the changing seasons, we're able to tell what a year is. Because you say, oh, those constellations, they appear exactly in the same time of the year, and I can expect it to come exactly the same time the next year. So I can figure out what a year is just by observing the stars and the phases of the moon and put it all together, and we can all observe what a year is. So the sun, the moon, and the stars, they serve as signs on natural clocks serve as timekeepers and, and, and calendars. And it shows an order, a, a cyclical pattern that God has set in this world. That there is a timekeeping system by which man and animals, they regulate the activities of their very life according to this cycle. And that's what we read in Psalm 104 this morning. But do you know what the interesting thing is? The days are marked out by the movement of the sun and the moon. The months are marked out by the phases of the moon. The years are marked out by the movement of the constellation and the seasons and the moon and the sun. But what is it in the sky that marks out a week? Have you ever thought of that? What in the sky marks out a week? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yet, people everywhere understand what a week is. A seven, that's seven literal days. You say, well, well, where do people get that concept from then, about a week? From the way God created the universe in six days and rested on the seventh day. Everyone, everywhere, follows the same pattern for a week, even those who reject the creator of this world, because it is the very pattern by which God made the entire universe. So God made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and gave it certain functions to separate the day from the night, to mark out the day and the months and the seasons and the years. He gave, thirdly, another function as well, and that is to give light to the earth. Verse 15 says, 
and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. See, there's no other light source for the whole earth. The sun provides light during the day. The moon and the stars, to some extent, provide light during the night. And that's the third function of the heavenly light holders, if you will. And then at the end of verse 15, I love that little phrase, it was so. That whatever God said, exactly in that way it happened. It was so. And what this shows again is the absolute sovereignty and the power of God. That God not only creates, but he also creates these heavenly bodies, but he also defines a function for it. And it functions exactly that way. The sun, moon, and stars are all secondary and subservient to God. God not only creates them, they all do his bidding. God tells them where to go, and they go there. He tells them how to function, and they function exactly that way, even to this day. You never see the sun sort of going like that, because it's set in a course. God has said, that's how you're going to go, and that's how it will move. It will not go anywhere else. You won't see the sun doing that, or the stars doing that. The one true creator God is the Lord of the sun, moon, and the stars. So that's God's declaration in 14 and 15. Let's look at God's creation now, how the creation of the lights in verses 16 through to 19. Verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. The two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. Now some will look at this verse and say, oh, you know, there are actually greater lights than the sun and the moon. And the stars. In fact, there are certain stars that are bigger and and brighter than even the sun. So this statement about the sun and moon as the two great lights, it's actually not correct. See, the Bible has errors. What you need to tell people at this time is this. The reason that the sun and the moon are singled out as the two great lights is because of its influence on earth. To provide light and seasons and order as it relates to the earth. In fact, that's exactly what the next verse says, where God reiterates uh, in how he made them, verse 17 and 18. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens, for what? These great lights? To give light, where? On the earth. To rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. See, there's no other star, whether big or small, brighter or dimmer, there's no other celestial body in space that exerts this kind of influence on the earth. 
So in, re- so in relation to the earth, the sun and the moon are the two great lights. And here are some things I want to help you think through just about the greatness of the sun. And I got this from some of the creation scientists. The sun is roughly 109 times the diameter of the earth. It's a large ball of gases constantly undergoing nuclear reactions. So think of it like this, billions of hydrogen bombs exploding every second, you know, producing massive amounts of energy. But the unique thing about the sun is that it is extremely stable in its power output. See, unlike other stars, which are stable sometimes and other times not so stable, and they vary in its brightness and its temperature, that's not the same case with the sun. The the sun has minor variations, but there's no huge fluctuations like the other stars. In fact, if there was such a variation in the sun's brightness like the other stars, then it would be impossible for life... uh, to maintain life on Earth, if the sun kept fluctuating like that. Another unique thing about the sun that is that unlike other stars which have flares, uh, and these flares that are given out by stars, by most of the stars, it can kill life on Earth. Now, the sun does have some flares, but comparatively, it's a lot milder. And you know what? There's even a magnetic field around the earth that God has placed that protects the earth from even these mild flares of the sun. The other thing is that the sun is also at the right distance from the earth and has the right size. If the sun was any bigger, it would kill life on earth with its radiation and heat. If the sun was any smaller, it would freeze everything on earth. So the sun maintains its temperature and its brightness, providing just the right amount of light and heat and energy that is required for life on earth. That's how God created this magnificent sun. Now the moon is also a great light for the earth. Yes, it's a lesser light compared to the sun. In fact, the moon is actually black. It's mostly black because it's covered with basalt. And the reason it looks white is because it reflects the light from the sun. Now again, some would object and say, oh, the moon does not emit light of its own. See, the Bible has got errors. Again, to such people, you want to tell them, there is absolutely no error in what the Bible is saying. The sun generates its own light. The moon, on the other hand, reflects the sun's light. But as far as the earth is concerned, both of these celestial bodies, they are responsible for giving light to the earth. So there's no factual error in what the Bible is saying. Yes, the sun and the moon give light to the earth. God assigned a function to the moon that is to provide light at night, And the moon does exactly that. 
And aside from providing light, the, the gravitational pull of the moon is the main cause of ocean tide. So the side of the earth that is closest to the moon, it experiences the, the greatest pull, gravitational pull of the moon. And so th in that area, the seas rise and you get high tide. And these tides are important because many of the fish and the crab and other creatures depend on the tide coming in and going for smaller fish to come in so they can feed on. One commentator even stated that the gravity of the moon is vital for life on Earth because it's the main cause of the tides. The, the tides, they cleanse the ocean shorelines and help keep the ocean current circulating, preventing the ocean from stagnating. Furthermore, the moon is about a fourth of the size of the planet Earth. Now that's a pretty big size compared to many of the moons of other planets, which are normally relatively small. The large size of the moon, together with the orbit of the moon around, this, around the Earth, it helps to maintain that tilt of the Earth. You see, because if the Earth doesn't maintain that tilt, there won't be changing seasons and the temperatures would not be balanced around the globe. So essentially, the, you know, it would significantly impact life on Earth. So in many ways, like the sun, the moon also helps to maintain the balance of having a life-sustaining environment on the Earth. So that's the greater and the lesser light. But there's an interesting word that God uses to describe its activity. It says there, in um, verse 16, a greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. The word rule, it has the idea of governing or dominating. That as the sun goes around its circuit during the day and the, and the moon by night, they, they dominate and govern the expanse for the period of time that's allocated to them. In other words, God has set these celestial bodies to serve in his place in the expanse. They are to serve as God's ministers in the expanse, reflecting his rule over the expanse. And do you know what happens? Just in a couple of days, on day six, God will appoint man to exercise dominion and rule over the earth and reflect God's rule. But here, on day four, the sun and the moon are to be God's ministers and reflect his rule over the expanse. And you know what, what God is doing here by using this word? It's from here, the very concept of a, of a theology of authority starts getting developed in the Bible. 
What it shows is that God is the ultimate authority. For anything else or anyone else, it's delegated authority by God. And that authority, in the way they are to function, will reflect the very rule of God. And that's what we see even more clearly when it comes to man. And then as you go through the pages of Scripture, it's developed even more as we see kings and, and other people in authority and governments and so on and so forth. Even husband-wife relationships and everything else. But it's this concept of delegated authority, delegated rule. Only God has supreme and absolute rule, but any other rule there is, it is delegated by God so as to reflect his rule. And then verse 16 again says, So God made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God also made the stars. You know, it's, it's estimated that the universe has 10 to the power 22 stars. 10 to the power 22 stars. And that's just an estimate. One commentator uh, wrote concerning this estimated number of stars. Uh, he says, This number is so vast that even using a computer that could count a trillion of these stars every second, it would take over 300 years to count this high. Imagine that. Then he adds, It's notable that the Bible says it is impossible for any man to number the stars or to count the stars. You can imagine, you know, the, the, the space, uh, almost a, a blank canvas, and God sp- speaks, and the space is covered with stars of different sizes and different colors and different shapes. Just all of a sudden, you know, this jeweled sky, what, what a sight it would have been. Apostle Paul in the New Testament alludes to this passage from Genesis 1 in 1 Corinthians 15, 40 and 41. It reads, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And the point that Paul is trying to make here is this. The God who created the, the earthly human bodies of, of, of a certain beauty will also create heavenly bodies for us of a different kind of beauty. And he relates that to the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the, the different stars. They, they all have their different splendor and how even each star differs from each other in its beauty and its glory. So for something so numerous, you know, spectacular, you, you know, you can't even count them. It must have been so beautiful to see. And even now when we look out, it's so beautiful to see the stars. But for something so numerous and spectacular, in Genesis 1, 
the description of God creating the stars is almost like a footnote or an afterthought. It just says, and the stars. It's almost like God is saying, oh yeah, the stars. Yeah, I made them too. You know, it was really nothing for me uh, to make them. Yes, there are billions and billions of them, but yeah, I made them too. It's just there. When I told them, it just happened. You know, sometimes people at this point will again object and, and say, oh, 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 you know what, about the stars? Did you know that our modern telescopes have discovered stars that are about a billion light years away? See, a, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. So people argue that if, if the light from the star had to reach us from a billion light years, then it means that a billion years have passed. So then they say, therefore, the universe is at least a billion years old. It's not just a few thousand years old. Ha, you know what the Bible says is all false. It didn't just happen in six literal days. You know, I think we can give a simple explanation for that. I don't know if there's a scientific explanation. Maybe there is. But I think just looking at the text of Scripture and the way God has made everything, there is a si simple explanation you can tell them. And you can say this. See, just like God created the expanse and the atmosphere and the mountains and the valleys and the beaches and fully grown trees and plants with seeds and fruits, uh, and essentially he made a fully grown earth in an instant, which normally would take time, all of these things, then he can surely create light from a star that is a billion light years away and just make it appear like that. That's not difficult for God. God can do that. If he can make trees just come like that, mature trees, a mature earth, when he makes man, he doesn't make a baby. It's a full-grown man, normally would take time. When he makes creatures, they're not little things that are sort of growing up, they're full-grown creatures. Then he can certainly make light from stars that's even a billion light years away and appear just in an instant. God can do that, when normally these things would take time. Again, we're seeing that this is God's work of creation. God is not subject to natural processes. In fact, it's God himself who sets these processes up. But he's not bound by it, and he can certainly act outside of it. This is God's creation, and all of creation is subject to him. And then verse 17 says, And God set them in the expanse of the heavens. God set them in the expanse. He placed the lights in the expanse exactly the way he wanted. It's distance from the earth. The, the, the orbit of the moon and the sun and everything is set in place by God. And it is precisely because God made it that way and set them in the expanse in a certain order we read in Psalm 19.1 the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky 
well, really, the word there is rakia. It should be, and the expanse above proclaims his handiwork. The, the, the beauty and the order of everything in space bears, it, it points to God and his signature. It points to his order and his beauty. When the sun and the moon dominate the sky as God intended them to rule as his ministers in the sky, they point to the glory of God. Now coming back to Genesis 1, again the function of the great lights is repeated. And then at the end of verse 18 it says, and God saw that it was good. He saw his goodness reflected in what he has made and he perceives it to be objectively good. And then verse 19, there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. There's no change in the pattern if you noticed. Another literal 24 hours have passed. The first three days, There was no sun and moon, but God had created the light. And God had separated the light from the darkness. He had defined what a day is, and there was a cyclical pattern of evening and morning. Day one, second day, third day. But now in day four, it's the sun and the moon that mark out the day and the night. But aside from that, the cycle still continues. There was evening, there was morning, a fourth day. Nothing has changed. You know, when Moses writes the book of Genesis, the people of Israel, they've left Egypt. And they're waiting to enter the promised land. And both in Egypt, as well as uh, the Canaanites, the 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 people that are part of the land that they're going to take over, as well as the surrounding regions. In all these areas, the people worship the sun as God, as the great God who gives light and life. The moon was also worshipped as God, and and you can see why, given how, how majestic both the sun and the moon are and how they dominate the sky during the day and the night and how they impact life on earth. You can see why people who are blinded can bow down to uh, these things. And then on top of that, the stars and their alignments were thought to control human destiny. That's what the ancient people thought. Much like today, people who look at astrology and, and star signs and horoscopes and, and so on, that they think that, oh, it's these things that control the various events of their life. And so they're busy looking at their uh, you know, horoscope columns and whatnot. Or they're, you know, whether they're an Aquarius or a Taurus or whatever else, or, and that defines who I am based on uh, just the constellations. But one of the things, you know, about day four, if you hadn't noticed already, 
is that the description of this day is unusually long. The only other one that's longer is the creation of man. And the other thing that you will notice is the sun and the moon, they're not given names. Now God names all those other things he's made, but he simply calls it the great lights. And we also saw how even the stars are talked about like a footnote or an afterthought. And when you look at the thrust of day four, uh, the thrust is on the function that God has given to these great lights, which is again repeated in reverse order in verses 17 and 18. What is all the show? What it shows is that while this is certainly a factual account of what God created on day four, It also serves as a polemic, as an argument against these false gods that the ancient Near Eastern culture believed in. See, God is saying, these magnificent celestial bodies, they're not kings. They're not gods. They're just bodies that I have created to sustain life on earth. They're my servants. I alone am king of this universe. I alone am God, and this is my world, and I own everything in this world. I alone am the creator God. So God is reminding the Israelites, see the God of these nations? They're not real. They're not gods. They are my creation. Yes, they, they are magnificent, but they point to my glory. So don't be, you know, all of this is my creation, so don't be tempted to bow down to them. He's reminding the Israelites. As you go into the land, and as you remember uh, how people worship these things even in Egypt, Don't be tempted to bow down to them, nor should you be fearful of these false gods. Nor should you be fearful of these nations who bow down to these gods. Why? Because I am the true and living God who is in control of everything. And I am the God who is with you. Now, we're not entering into any battle or entering some foreign land like the Israelites. But we are living as aliens and sojourners in a land that is not our own. And we can be tempted to fear and submit to so many things in this world. And that fear causing us to, because we bow down so much to those false gods, it causes us to then compromise in our Christian walk and it causes us to sin. But we need to remember the same. That our God is the only true and living God and we need not fear anything. And aside from not fearing anything, uh, you know, positively, what should be our response as we see these heavenly bodies? 
Well, in Psalm 8, David beautifully tells us in verses 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. See, David is saying, when, when I consider the heavens and all the heavenly hosts, of how great uh, these heavenly hosts are, when I see the majesty and the beauty and the wisdom and the greatness and the vastness, which really points to the beauty and greatness of God, God, why are you mindful of man? Why would you pay attention to man, God? I mean, when nothing compared to these magnificent things that you have placed in the sky. You know what that should do? It should cause us to humble our hearts and worship our God. Because this God, this very same God, truly considers us and he pays attention to us and he chose to love us and make us his children by sending us his son to die on the cross for our sins. That is the God we serve. That maker is the God that we have this close relationship with. That's the great God we believe in and trust in. Let's close in prayer. God, we are thankful that you continue to reveal yourself to us from your word. And we pray that as you reveal yourself to us from your word, and even as you remind ourselves of the grandeur and the splendor of the things that you have created which simply point to you. Help us not to be dulled by the glories that we see around us, but help us in the days to come to be even more aware of it, to even more appreciate the beauty and the order and the, uh, and, and the greatness of all that you have created not just to simply see how great that is, but then to come back to you and say how great you are. Most of all, Father, we thank you that, as David said, that despite all this, you paid attention to puny creatures like us, and you chose to love us, and you chose to make us your children. Help us, therefore, to continue to trust in you, increase our faith, help our unbelief, and help us to be shining witnesses of you as long as you keep us here on this earth. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.